Good morning. Welcome. My name's Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy House, and uh, glad to see you all here. I also want to encourage those who are elementary age uh, kiddos uh, that they can go down and be a part of the class downstairs at this time. Awesome. All right. Week three, Deuteronomy. Last week, uh, I had at least some feedback, and uh, it was really good. People asking good questions, some written on uh, the prayer card, some sent to me, and uh, so I wrote a little article on our website answering some of those questions, but uh, be, feel free to, to ask questions, to, to, to message us, uh, message me about that, because this, this kind of a teaching from a book like Deuteronomy is going to bring out some, some good questions. And I think it's going to help you understand who God is better. It's going to help you understand Jesus and His role and what the cross means. All these things are going to become more uh, clarified as we look at Deuteronomy. So, so far I've said that uh, Deuteronomy is like a swing, right? Like Moses wants the people to move forward and engage in the conquest of the promised land. But like a swing... He's got to swing back before he can move forward. And so the first three chapters of Deuteronomy was uh, looking back. And, and he'll weave in a lot of remembrance throughout this where they're, they're swinging back and looking back. But the beginning part of the book is really what I call the backstory. And so they've, they've looked back and they look back at the failure of their parents, uh, that their parents were invited to go into the promised land and they said no and they were disciplined and had to wander around in the desert for 40 years. Uh, they also remember a victory, a couple of victories, in fact, where they were sort of forced into military engagement with King Sion and King Og, and they, uh, got the God, the God of, of the Hebrews was with them, and he helped them, and they, they had victory. And so uh, now that they've looked back in this next chapter, chapter 4, uh, which you can be looking for chapter 4 in those Bibles there, Deuteronomy 4, uh, which is where we'll be, be looking here in a few minutes, uh, it's here where he gives the terms of the relationship. And uh, these terms have already been given on, on Mount Sinai, or sometimes called Mount Horeb, uh, but he, he, he restates the terms of the relationship. And all relationships have terms. They all have terms. Sometimes they're spoken, sometimes they're not. Uh, when we're, you know, if, if we're dating someone, we'll, we'll have the DTR, right? We'll, do, we'll, we'll uh, define the relationship, and uh, we'll figure out what the terms are. What is this? Are we just hanging out? Uh, are we dating? Are we headed toward marriage? Like, what is the deal? Uh, and, and even in friendships, we have terms. Think about it. You have some people that maybe you wouldn't even call friends. They're more like acquaintances. You know their names, and when you're with another friend, that friend brings them along, and you say hi, and you talk, and you chat, and you catch up. But their phone, their phone number's not in your phone. You, you, don't even, you, you couldn't call them if you wanted to. Right? So that's like one level. And, and then the second level might be uh, you have their number in your phone, and if you're bored and your BFFs aren't available, you might give them a call and go hang out, go to a movie, go out to eat, do something like that. But then there's the level of the BFF, right? And their phone number is in your favorites. And if they need something, you will drop, you will drop it. I mean, if you, you've got your PhD dissertation the next day and they're having a crisis, you drop it, you go take care of them, and you show up to your dissertation you know, totally exhausted. Like, that's the kind of, of terms that that particular relationship has. And so you also have terms in, in terms of your relationship with God. And we talked about um, 
some of the terms that uh, I would say a lot of U.S. Christians have uh, that we called moralistic therapeutic deism last week. Um, moralistic as in the idea is if I'm a good person, uh, this is what God wants, and if I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. Therapeutic as in God wants me to feel good about myself and, and be happy. And then deism, that God is kind of out there. He's not really all that involved in my life unless I have a problem. And then I can kind of put him, you know, put him on the speed dial. I can call him and he can get involved in my life so that he can return my life to happiness. And we said that there's a lot of people that are, are uh, calling that Christianity. And it's nothing like a good dose of Deuteronomy to let you know that is not Christianity. That is not, that is not the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. It's a God of our own making. And so today we, we, we press into the terms. What, what are the terms of this relationship with the God of the Bible? So let's look. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. We just heard this read. It says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. All right, so here's what we're going to look at here in the text here. We're going we're to see what the what and the why and the how of the terms of Israel's relationship with God. The what and the why and the how. Uh, this is the what. The what is keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. These are the terms of the relationship that Israel has with God. At first glance, God sounds like a mob boss. He's like, keep the commandments or I'll break your legs, right? But it's more like an oncologist talking to someone who has terminal cancer. Someone who's smoked two packs a day and has, has eaten bad food and uh, is, is terminal and the lung cancer is spreading and the oncologist says, I'm going to give you some commands. Stop smoking. Stop eating the, this food that's killing you. Start taking the chemo. That's what it's, well, that's, a, that's what he's saying. He's, he's not some mob boss that's saying, do this or else. He's saying, you're in a condition of death, and I want to send you back to life. I'm showing you the path back to Eden. Think, think about this. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, and sin has not entered into the world. The fall has not occurred. And they're experiencing the perfect integration that we talked about last week. The, there's an integration of heaven and earth. God is dwelling with His people. There's a perfect integration between human and human. Relationships between uh, humans are, are perfect. And there's even an integration between uh, body and soul, meaning that Adam and Eve are not going to die. Right? That's what happens when we die. The disintegration between body and, and soul occurs the body to lose life and become dead. And so there's this perfect integration. And God explains to them in the garden in Genesis 2, uh, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of, the, of, the, of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He's explaining to them, if, if you sin against God, if if you're going to bring about this condition of death, of separation, of disintegration, of heaven and earth, of human and human, of body 
and soul. And so when God says to Israel, obey the commands, he, he's reversing that disintegration. He's giving them a path back to Eden. So this is, this is the what. Um, there's, there's ways that he mentions that we don't keep the commands. In verse 2, he says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So he talks about three ways in which we don't keep the commands. So one is we just flat out disobey it. That's, that, that seems pretty obvious. He says don't lie, and we lie. He says uh, don't commit adultery, we commit adultery. Right? That, that, that's straightforward. And it's, it's pretty early on in our uh, lives that we get this. My uh, daughter right now is doing a lot of babysitting for the young families in this church. And so she comes home, and she always has babysitter stories. And a lot of them are, 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 are similar to, to just this sort of general story. She's like saying to the child, please don't throw the jello into the face of your brother. And, they, and it's almost like they, they just look at her and go, boom! Right? And she's like, Dad, I, what is the deal? Like, I, I say, don't do it, and then they do it, right? And, and there is this kind of knee-jerk reaction in us as human beings, and we we're told, don't do this, and then we, we do it. And so that's one way to not keep the commands. But he mentions this, these other two ways as well. He says, don't add to them. That might sound weird. Add to the commandments? Really? But think about it. We do this. It's called legalism. Or we take God's commands and we add something to it, an additional prohibition to sort of protect ourselves from, from, from uh, not keeping the command. And then we begin to think that the, the, the prohibition that we've come up with is now the Word of God. And then we start to tell everyone else, if you don't do this, you're breaking the Word of God. But in fact, it's not the Word of God. It's actually something that we've added. And we've become stricter than God is. And so you see this in different settings, sometimes in, in different traditions, uh, you, you see this in regards to alcohol, right? So people read in the Bible, it's in the book of Ephesians, don't get drunk with wine. It's clear. Getting drunk is a sin. We shouldn't do that, right? We lose our faculties. We, we're not able to make uh, good decisions. Our, our judgment is clouded, and so it's hard to follow Jesus and make Him Lord if we're intoxicated or we're high like that. that that's definitely uh, against Scripture. But to then say, all alcohol at any moment, even if one little sip is a sin, which certainly that is said by certain Christian traditions. That's, that's not what Scripture says. That's not what Scripture says. Now, it could be a conviction that you have where you say, you know what, for me, drinking any alcohol is something that I, I feel like God doesn't want me to do. That's totally fine. Totally. But to then say to others, thou shalt not drink alcohol at all, that, that's not totally fine because we're adding to scripture. We see that with entertainment, right? We might have some personal convictions about entertainment. We should. There's some things we shouldn't watch that aren't good and noble and right and true. But when we start making rules, thou shalt not see this kind of movie, thou shalt not see this kind of entertainment, then we're beginning to add to the scriptures. Again, to have a conviction about something, that's good, and we want to do that. We have to do that. We can't go to the scripture and, and, and always find the exact verse that we need to make a decision, but we don't want to add to the commandment. Uh, we see this with the way people think about money. 
Uh, scripture says in, uh, I want to say 2 Timothy, maybe first, first or 2 Timothy, I should look that up, uh, that, that the, uh, the root of evil, that money is the root of all evil, right? And uh, this, this turns into anyone who's rich is evil. Like, no, no, that, that's, not, that's not right, right? It's, it's money that can potentially become a, a root of, of evil, but having money and stewarding it for the glory of God, hey, we want that. We need that in this world. So we have to be careful that we don't take God's commands and then add to them. He also mentions subtracting from them. Don't subtract from them. Don't make them less, uh, less stringent than they really are. We see this uh, in scriptures that point to Christ being the only way to be reconciled with God. Right? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that scripture and other scriptures definitely point to the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus. And that is, a, it's a very, very controversial claim in our current culture. Because we want to say, no, 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 all religions are equally valid. And Christianity is my particular religion, and this is what I've chosen, and it works for me. But we don't want to say, no, Jesus is the only way, although Scripture does say He is the only way. We see this in the area of sexuality. Right? We see uh, that, that, that biblical marriage is a man and a woman, and that uh, any sex expressed outside of that, whether it be extramarital sex or homosexual sex, any, any sex outside of of sex between a man and a woman in a marriage is sin, right? But we want, we want to make that less strict than it is. And we, we want to say that, well, if two people love each other, it's okay. Whatever, whatever they want to do, as long as it's loving and mutual and, and it's building them up, like, this, let them, like God's love, like, like he, it should be okay, right? We're making things less stringent than they actually are. And, and, and so we see this that we are to keep the command. Don't add to them. Don't take away from them. Uh, keep the commandments. Now, why would we keep the commandments? Right? That's the what. It's pretty simple. Why do we keep the commandments? So he gives multiple reasons, but here starting in, in verse 3, the first reason, he says, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed them among uh, from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. So a couple of reasons are, are tucked away in there. Uh, so one, one reason is, is because disobedience leads to death. Disobedience leads to death. And, he, and he, tell, he just does a brief mention of this story from Numbers 25, the Baal of Peor. And so the, the people of God were wandering around in the desert, desert, the desert. They'd been clearly taught that worshiping other gods was wrong. They're in the Moabite part of the desert, uh, and they, they, they bump into the Moabites, and the Moabites are worshiping their own gods. Part of how they worship their own gods is they eat these meals before their god, and they have sex with temple prostitutes. Uh, and some of the Israelite men evidently thought that was a great idea, right? And so they start worshiping in this way uh, the Moabite God. We know from Psalm 106, which is a, kind of a summary of this, that, that they were not only um, worshiping the God, but they were sacrificing to the dead. So uh, Psalm 106, 28 says, They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead 
and they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. And so not only were they worshiping this God, but they were also trying to communicate with the dead. So this is, this is like a pretty wild ride here, what, what they're doing. And God does get angry, and God disciplines them with a plague. And so all of Israel is before uh, the tabernacle, and they're weeping, and they're repenting. And, and Moses explains in no uncertain terms that if anyone's participating in this, they will be killed and they get word that somebody is participating in it in their own home. They brought a Moabite a prostitute into their home, and here they're worshiping this other god. And one of the priests leaves where they're worshiping there in front of the tabernacle, goes to the home, takes his spear, and runs it through both the woman and the man who are in this worship ceremony. And Moses brings that up in his sermon. What he's saying is, you don't keep the commandments, the result is death. That's one of the reasons to follow the commands of the Lord. Now, that's not the only reason, right? He also mentions that there, those that did not disobey the commands are all alive today. So this is the second reason, um, that there's life in the commands. That's why I say he's more like an oncologist, not a mob boss. He's an oncologist talking to dying humanity and saying, keep these commandments. They are a path back to Eden. They are a path back to light. life. He says in verse 5, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Right? So he's saying that if you do these, these are wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is living well. Wisdom is living well. Uh, Proverbs is like the ultimate place to go and hear about wisdom. Proverbs 3, uh, you have the, the writer personifying wisdom as a woman and it says in verse 16, long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a, light, a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The writer of Proverbs inviting the reader to embrace wisdom and saying it's the tree of life. That's why I say this is the path back to Eden. That's what's being taught in, in Proverbs, that God is a physician treating those who are spiritually sin-sick, and He's inviting them back on a path to life. So why do you keep the commands? Because if you disobey, there's death. If you do obey, there's life. Um, when you, another way to think about this is think of Israel like an underdeveloped nation that's on a, a journey of, of being a developed nation. One, one of the biggest things to, to, to try to turn around in an underdeveloped nation is the issue of corruption. Those in power, oftentimes in an undeveloped nation, don't see the value in being people of integrity, of doing the right thing when no one's looking. <laughs> They don't see the value in that. And those that are under the power don't believe that there will be enough people in their country that will sign on to the social contract, so to speak, and say, I will do the right thing when no one's looking. And so they feel like it's not worth it. 
It's not worth it to do the right thing because no one else is doing the right thing. And so Moses is, is trying to help Israel move from, from that old mentality to this new mentality, that keeping the law, embracing the wisdom of God is going to protect them from death and it's going to lead them to life. Back to Eden. Now there's a third why, and this might be surprising to you. There in verse 6 again, he's telling them to keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom, your understanding. And then he says, in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So the third why is because of the peoples that are looking on to Israel and seeing what a great God that they're serving. And you say, what, what peoples? I thought they were killing all the peoples. No, <laughs> no. No, they're, they're establishing a beachhead there in a particular geographical region right there, and then they're going to live life before all the other peoples that are in the surrounding areas. And what those peoples are seeing is, is that, that Israel is in a living relationship with a, a living God, and that that God speaks to them, and He speaks these commandments to them. And these commandments are life-giving, and they're good. And as they receive those commandments from God, and they then obey those commandments, they thrive. And the onlookers begin to think about, wow, what, who is this God that's so near to them? And so, you know, last week as we looked at them wiping out, you know, King Sion and King Og, and, and we think, oh, you know... It, God's, God's just wiping out everyone who's not Israel. No, He's playing for the peoples. And when you think about the bigger story, the bigger redemptive story, he, He's setting up a plan that's going to rescue the peoples of the earth. And because things are so bad and so unraveled and so disintegrated that He has to begin by securing this little perimeter in the middle of the known world at that, at that time. So how do we keep these commands? Right? We know what we're supposed to do, keep the commands, uh, why we're supposed to do it, but how? It doesn't seem that easy to follow. Uh, we seem as human beings to have a difficult time following the commands. He gives a couple of insights here. Verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. It gives them a, a thing to do internally and a thing to do externally that's helping them understand how to keep the commands. Internally, you keep your soul diligently. Keep your soul diligently. He's talking about this ongoing reflection on the person, that's who God is, and His work, what God does. Ongoing reflection at the very core of who you are, of the person and the work of God. We might call it praise and thanksgiving. When we praise God, we're praising Him for His person, praising Him for who He is. When we thank God, we're thanking Him for what He does. He's saying, keep your soul diligently. Praise and thank God over and over and over and over again. You might also call it meditation. 
Not Eastern meditation like empty yourself and let the universe you know, suck into your soul, but Western meditation where, where you're allowing God to come and speak to your heart at the very core of who you are. And you're reflecting on and you're being reminded of who He is and what He's done. This is the, 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 the instruction that, that Joshua, who will soon take over from Moses, is given in Joshua 1.8. He's told by God, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So here he is. He's the leader of a couple million people. He, he's a military strategist, and, and God's giving him the pep talk and saying, okay, this as a leader, this is what you need to do. And you would think, you need to have strategy sessions. You need to have good leadership that you put in play. There's a lot of things God could have said, but what he says is, I want you to meditate on this law day and night. I want you to keep your soul diligently. Reflect on the person and the work of God. Over and over and over and over again. And, and, and if, if that's not done, there's, there's no way to keep those commandments. He's also going to establish a Sabbath. So next week, chapter 5, we'll hear about the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is keep the Sabbath day. Right? Keep it holy. Set aside time every week in order to keep your soul diligently. That's, that's what that's for. To rest and to worship. That's why we gather every week. You can say, well, we can do this once a month. No, we need this. We need this weekly. We need to keep our souls diligently as we reflect on the person and the work of God. He's also letting them know that this keeping of the commandments comes from the heart. It's, it's not this kind of white-knuckling, teeth-gritting, uh, kind of, a, 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 of forcing yourself to keep the commandments even though you hate them and you don't want to do them, but you just know that they're... No, that's not what it's like. He's describing this, this trust, this belief, this faith that comes from the very core of who you are as you keep your soul diligently reflecting on the person and work of God. He also mentions an external thing to do. He says, teach it to your kids. Teach it to your kids. Make sure the next generation knows about who God is and what He has done because they're not going to experience it firsthand. And most of God's people throughout the ages, including us, have not experienced a lot of the major things that God has done firsthand. I mean, there was one generation that experienced the Exodus and saw the ten plagues and saw the Red Sea and saw the desert wanderings. Like, there's one generation. But we have the text that describes what they experienced. And so, Generation after generation after generation is being taught. Same thing with Christianity. There's one generation that, that saw Jesus walk the earth and, and teach and die on the cross and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, and, and, and they wrote that stuff down. And then every other generation, we're, we're looking back at God's Word and we're reflecting on His person and His work. So it's another, another way to keep the commandments. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Deuteronomy 6, uh, because it, it talks quite a bit about uh, parents and children and how to, to pass on to the next generation. The third how, and this is really the most important how, Moses tucks into a very important story. So verse 10 says, How on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my word, so that they may learn to fear me 
all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near, and you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heaven, uh, heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, and you heard sound of words, but you saw no form, and there was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant. This is the third and most important how. <laughs> is that God is in covenant with them. Yes, it's important that they keep their soul diligently. Yes, it's important that they pass it on to their children. But it is most important that God has started this covenant with them. And that the keeping of the covenant is on the foundation of God. Not whether or not the people can keep up their end of the deal. It's, it's not a mutual thing. It's, it's not like a contract where God says, you know, if, if, if you don't do this, then I'm done. I'm going to forsake you forever. I'm going to go find me a new people group. I'm going to start over. He does not do that. Now, he disciplines them. There's going to be a time of exile when they, they totally leave Israel and they're in other parts of, of the world and then there's a return. And so there, there's, there's discipline, but he never leaves them. He never forsakes them. And it's because he's made a covenant with them. And it's because these, this covenant that they'll be able to fulfill and keep the commandments, so to speak. Because here's what's going to happen. That, that, those commandments uh, are going to be a reminder to them that they are sinners. They're not going to be able to keep them perfectly. And it's going to drive them back to the sacrificial system and they're going to make sacrifices for their sin. It's going to drive them back to ritual cleansings where they're reminded that they're unclean because of sin and they need to be cleansed. And that's going to happen for 1,500 years. And it's going to prepare them for Christ. It's going to prepare them for Christ because the commands could have never saved them. The commands are part of the larger plan. They're part of how God is going to build this on-ramp for God the Son to come in and to redeem them but they're never going to be able to follow these commands. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's really clear. Really clear. No human being is going to follow the law. There's no one righteous. No, not one. We, we, we looked at that last week, also in Romans 3. Romans 3 would be a good... A good uh, little footnote for you to read while you're reading Deuteronomy to help you understand the nature and purpose of the law. And so he lets them know that there's no way that the law is going to save you, but it's going to make you aware of your sin and aware of your need for a Savior. Because God is building a path back to Eden. The law is part of that path, but the ultimate part of that path is not a list of laws, it's a person. The path is a person, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Again, from Romans chapter 8, those of you that were here last spring, you, you memorized this, you'll probably start wrapping it back to me because we did some uh, creative ways to memorize it. But Romans 8, 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It lets, him, lets us know that the, the law was perfect, it was good, there's nothing wrong with it, it's, it, it is life-giving, it, it's a path back to Eden, but it was weakened by the flesh, the indwelling sin, our condition. We couldn't keep it well enough to get back to Eden. And so Christ came as a human being and lived that law perfectly, internally, externally, and it qualified Him to die on the cross in our place. He was a perfect sacrifice. And so again, that law shows us that we are in need of a Savior, and it drives us to Christ. Now, you may be thinking, oh, cool. So I don't have to obey that silly law, right? We just throw the law out. Like, if I know Jesus, uh, I'm good. And there's some versions of this in, in different kinds of church traditions that uh, are, are, are really toxic. Um, for some Protestant traditions, uh, they have this thing where it's like, go down front and pray the sinner's prayer. Like, pray to become a Christian, and then I'm a Christian. And then no matter what I do, it doesn't matter, I'm a Christian, right? Well, that's, that's not in the Bible. That, 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 that is uh, a, a complete misunderstanding of the response that God is calling for the gospel. Uh, for those in Roman Catholic tradition, sometimes the, the, the sense is, not always, but sometimes the sense is that if I go to church and I, I take the sacrament, I'm good. Live however I want. And so, that, no, absolutely not. That yes, it's, it's a free gift of grace, but our response to that grace, if, if we've truly received it and we've beheld the glory of the gospel, will be a desire to now follow God's commands. Think of it this way. If the oncologist has sat down with you and has given you uh, commands about your health and about your treatment and then explains to you that the, the treatment that's going to require is that the oncologist is going to give his life and he's going to allow his organs to be harvested so that you can live. And then begins to explain to you that he is commanding you to steward well his organs. After I'm gone, would you, would you take care of yourself? Would you stop smoking if I give you my lungs? Would, would you stop eating horrible food if I gave you my, my stomach and my own flesh and blood? If I gave that to you, would, would you, will you steward those well? Will you live rightly? And I would say, you would say yes! <laughs> right? Absolutely! What would I, what, how could I not do that? And, and yes, it, it's going to be hard. Yes, there's some addictions I'm going to have to get over. There's some things I'm going to have to say no to. It's going, to, it's going to be difficult, but I now have a new level of health that will actually help me to say no to those things and say yes to this new way of living. This is much like our story as, as Christians. If if we've come to understand our sin and our need for a Savior and that Christ, the divine Son of God, has given His life on the cross so that we could live, and that through that, not only has He given us forgiving grace, but He's given us transforming grace, God's Spirit living inside of us. We now have a level of health that we didn't have before, and then He, he commands us. Not because he's saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to take your salvation away, but, but because I have done this, will you respond to my grace and my mercy by absolutely unconditionally surrendering your life to me 
in worship, which is actually a path back to Eden. It's a path back to Eden. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. We're reminded of Jesus, the physician, standing there with his disciples who are captive to sin and its effects, and the doctor taking the bread and breaking it and offering it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, church, I want you to go back to this again and again and again, and I want you to remember there's only one medicine. There's only one medicine. There's only one remedy. There's only one path back to Eden. And it's what Christ does for us on the cross. And to be reminded of that one and only remedy again and again and again and again. In the same way, Jesus took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. He lets them know that, yes, the old covenant was extremely important in the larger redemptive story of God, but there's a continuity from that old covenant to this new covenant whereby a Savior is offered to lawbreakers like you and me. And we can be forgiven for our failure failure to obey the law And we can be transformed so that we can follow God's commands, not perfectly, but to grow in obedience to His commands, both internal and external, not white-knuckling, teeth-gritting kind of obedience, but obedience that comes from the heart. And as we do that, the onlookers who look into the community that is the church begin to say, What kind of people is that who has a God who's so near to them, who has these commands that bring life and are are part of this thriving community? And so this this is what Christ is offering you this morning. And if you've never received that medicine, and you know this morning that that this this is the one and only remedy, that what Christ has done on the cross for you is, is what you need to forgive you and to heal you and to restore you and to bring you back in relationship with God and self and others. Receive that by faith. It's a gift. It's a gift. And I'm offering it to you this morning on behalf of Christ. For others of us to be reminded that because we've taken the medicine. Because of of the forgiveness that God has given us, because of the grace that God pours out in our life day in, day out, because of the level of health that we've been given in the power of the Holy Spirit, we now are not only free from sin, we're free from the penalty of sin, but we're free from captivity of sin. And not to say it's not hard, not to say that this is not difficult, but we have a freedom to obey and for that to bring life to us and life to those around us. So let's take this moment to either receive Christ for the first time or to, to repent, to confess, to give thanks for the remedy, the medicine that God has provided for us to give us new life in Him. So let's pray. God, we thank You that You are a loving, 
God who has poured out everything in order to bring us back to Eden, to bring us back in fellowship with you. And we, we celebrate that as we break this bread and take this cup and reminded of the medicine that was needed so that that could be made a reality. And so for those who are for the first time receiving you by faith, Lord, would you meet them in that moment? Would you affirm that, that you indeed have come to live in their hearts and that you love them and that you want to be in this relationship with them and that they would be given grace to totally submit to you, to unconditionally surrender to you as their Lord. And for others of us here, our followers of yours, Lord, help us. Help us to live in the sight of the peoples in ways that will call them to faith as well on our campuses, in our communities, our neighborhoods. God, would you bless this bread and this cup as we take it. May we be uh, drawn to intimacy with you and enjoy fellowship with one another. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.